My name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Um, and I get the privilege this morning of leading us as we read and we teach from God's word. And as we get started with that, let me add uh, my own just two cents to one of the announcements that we had made. Uh, we are planning to have that joint combined service on January 29th at Veritas, like Tim said, where we're going to bring all three services together. Uh, we had wanted to do that once a year. And some of you may remember we were able to do it at Dogwood Dell a couple of years ago outdoors. And, and we wanted to do that. And three times we have tried and three times they have been booked uh, and they are not able to do it. So we are going to have Family Sunday, January 29th, right now, God willing, at Veritas coming together. But I say God willing and as he wills. So you need to write it down in pencil because you might remember we said this once before and then had to take it back. Well, there are still a few logistical details that need to be worked out to make that a reality. And I'm hoping that early this week, we will get them cleared away and it will be good to go. So write it in pencil and one way or another, we will let you know for sure. But that's what we're aiming to do. And that should be a good time for all of us. So I'm excited for that Sunday. Uh, that's going to be a good time. It's going to be a fun time together. Um, I'm also excited this morning to, to be in God's word with you. So if you've got your Bible, you want to make your way to the book of Judges. We are continuing in our journey through that Old Testament book. I guess I can still call it the 12 Judges of Christmas. We have ended the Christmas season, but we're not quite done yet. We're going to be in Judges chapter 11 this morning. And I'm excited because we're dealing with God's good and, and true and infallible word. And I was reminded this week in Paul's letter to the church in Rome that he reminded them that whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. So I'm excited to be in God's infallible word with you this morning, but I'm gonna be honest, I'm not excited about what we're going to read in this particular season in the life of God's people in the book of Judges. In fact, a few months ago, as we were going through the community Bible reading together, the CBR journal together, uh, we were in the book of Judges and one morning, my wife yelled at me across the house. She said, hey, babe, are you going to preach all the way through Judges? And I said, that's the plan. And we were in two different rooms. And she said, so are you going to preach Judges 11? And I said, that's the plan. And she said, great. I can't wait to see how you're going to do that. And, it, and it, was, it was silent for like 30 seconds. And she said, no, seriously, what are you going to say? Are you really going to do that? And I said, that, that's the plan. And she said, I really want to know how you're going to do it. And the more I just I sat there for a second, I thought, you know, there was this moment in one of my son's basketball games where he's 11 years old, so their rules are somewhat limited. And, and his team was down by one point with seconds left in the game, and they had just hit a three-pointer. It's everything you imagine on TV. The other team inbounds the ball, and here's the rules for 11-year-olds. There's no clock to cross the half-court line. There's no full-court press allowed. The other team inbounded the ball and stood there and dribbled it let the clock run out, and then walked off the court. And I thought about it for a minute. I said, you know what? I think I'm just going to read Judges chapter 11 and 12 as slow as I can. <laughs> and I'm going to see how much time I can take just reading it, pray, and then walk out the door and go on to the next one. That was my strategy when she asked me, because the reality of it is, if you've never engaged with the book of Judges, this is where Judges in particular starts to take a very dark turn. If it hasn't been dark enough, it gets darker here and it will keep going. So let me say this, parents, for those of you that are in here with us and you enjoy bringing your children with you in here, and we're glad you do it. If you've never read the book of Judges, you know that we go chapter by chapter, story by story. Read ahead. You need to know what we're going to be coming to. 
You don't want to sit there one morning and be surprised by what we read in God's word and think, how in the world are they going to handle that? We, we always try to handle things as, as responsibly as we can. We're, we're never scandalous for the sake of scandal, but you need to read ahead. And you need to know what's coming as we go through this book because it takes a dark turn. The story this morning in Judges 11 and really in the first part of Judges chapter 12, it's, it's a gritty story. It's a painful story. And this text serves as a lesson for you and I. It's a warning for you and I. It's encouragement by warning. And while we read the story, the the details of life in this particular time may seem like a million miles away from life in 21st century America, but the reality of it is what's going on in the hearts of God's people? What's going on at the heart of this story? The same thing happens for you and I today as well. It's really no different at all. I was reading a book this week by Michael Horton fantastic book called Christless Christianity. And and in it, Michael Horton said that his greatest concern right now for the church in America is that we're getting dangerously close to the place in everyday American church life where God is used as a personal resource rather than someone who's known, worshiped, enjoyed, and trusted. And he went on to say that while it's true, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, He said, the assimilation of the church to the world silences its witness that God had prepared. Friends, that warning spoken so clearly by Michael Horton to us today is the warning of God's word in Judges chapter 11 and Judges chapter 12. That's what we're going to have to come face to face with this morning, the impact and the consequences when God's people trivialize God. The picture that's going to be put on display for us this morning is a picture of a heart that doesn't deny God. It doesn't outright deny his existence, it doesn't deny his reality, it doesn't even deny his word, but at heart it trivializes God. It's a picture of a heart that doesn't know God, doesn't enjoy God, doesn't trust God, and certainly doesn't worship God. Rather, it's a heart that thinks it can actually master God, that can use God. And what we're going to see in Judges chapter 11 and the beginning of Judges chapter 12, we are going to see that the consequences of such a drift are deadly. The story this morning, it's not a pretty story. There's no bow I can put on it at the end. It's a painful story, but by God's grace, it serves as a warning for us, a lesson for us, for our instruction. So if you've got your Bible opened up already to Judges chapter 11, I want you just to look back a few verses to Judges chapter 10, starting in verse 17, because that's where the story of Judges 11 really kind of begins. Let me just show you this for a second. This is the problem that Judges chapter 11 is going to try to answer. Judges chapter 10, verse 17, it says, the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead and the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah. So the the Ammonites are preparing to come again now and and go to battle with God's people near Gilead. So verse 18, the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, I love the question, who is the man? Just so you understand in the big picture of the Bible, that's the question that people are looking to the answers for ever since Genesis chapter 3. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned against God and faced the judgment of God for their sin, God promised them in that moment that one day the seed of the woman would come, the promised Messiah would come, and he would crush the head of the serpent. Ever since that moment, God's people in the Old Testament have been asking, who is that man? 
Who, who is that one? Well, that's the question they're asking for here. Who's the one that's going to come and lead us? Who's the one that's going to come deliver us? Well, Judges 11, chapter 1, we get a brief introduction to the particular deliverer that God is going to use in this cycle in the story of Judges. 11, chapter 1, Jephthah was a Gileadite. He was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So here's the picture of the one that's going to be used in this time in the life of God's people. He's an illegitimate son born to a prostitute. And you can get the picture when his brothers, his half-brothers grow up and realize what's going to come to them through their inheritance. It's going to be a lot bigger if they can get rid of one other person. So they set Jephthah aside, the illegitimate son, outcast from his own family. Verse 3 says that Jephthah fled at this point from his brothers, and he lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Jephthah was an outcast from his family. And what we learn in verse 3 here in chapter 11 is that he was also an outlaw. Evidently, as a mighty warrior, he was very good at certain things. And so when he found himself in Tob and men went out with him, worthless men went out with him, what it's talking about is that they were bandits, banditos. They went out on raids. They went and stole people's property. Jephthah was a mighty warrior leading a, a collection of bandits, a collection of outlaws. That little introduction helps you to understand what's going to happen next in the story. In verse 4, after a time, the Ammonites, who had set up camp against Israel near Gilead, they made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. Now, do you get the picture? You got to read it like a human. Jephthah's brothers don't want him around because he's going to cut into their inheritance. So they send him out. He's an outcast from his family. He winds up in Tob as an outlaw, leading a group of outlaws. When his kinsmen end up having to face war against the Ammonites and realize that they can't do it, now all of a sudden it's convenient to know old Jephthah. They don't want him around for dinner. They don't want him at family reunions. But when their back is against the wall and they're in a dark alley against someone that they know they can't beat, they go calling for Jephthah. He's kind of, if, you, if you're a TV fan, he's like the Jack Bauer in the story. You don't want him around. He's not the one you invite over for dinner. But when someone hides a nuke in D.C. and it's going to go off in 15 hours, he's the one you call. And it doesn't matter how much of a mess he makes. That, that's Jephthah. And he realizes it. He knows what they're thinking. One thing to understand about Jephthah as we go through the story, he's not a stupid man. He's a very smart man. And he realizes what's happening here. So in verse 6, they come to him and they say, hey, Jephthah, come be our leader that we might fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, do you, do you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you now come to me when you're in distress? Oh, he's slick. He's slick. This isn't, that's not a real question. You realize that, right? But, oh, oh, now you want me, right? I thought you hated me. Well, now you're in trouble when you want me to come back, huh? And the elders of Gilead said to him, well, that's why we've turned to you now, that you can go out with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And 
Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all of his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So you catch the story. They make a pitch to him to get him to come back. If you come back, you can be our leader. If you take us into battle and you're victorious over the Ammonites, you will be the head over all the tribe. We kicked you out once because you were a half brother. But if you come and save us in this point and, and God gives our enemies over to us through your leadership, you can be our head. Jephthah says, that's a good deal. I'll take my talents back to Gilead now. And Jephthah goes to Gilead. He's going to be their leader. He's going to lead them in battle. So with all of that sorted out, Jephthah now tries to sort out the problem with the king of the Ammonites. You're going to find that in chapter 11, verses 12 through 28. And what you'll realize, and it's important for the whole story, Jephthah is very good with his words. The way this story normally gets taught for anyone who's familiar with it, it seems to make a, a point, a picture of Jephthah overall when we get to the end, that he wasn't very good with his words. He wasn't very good with his mouth. It's the exact opposite. He negotiates a good deal with the tribe of Gilead. He's going to be their leader. Now he's going to negotiate a deal with the king of the Ammonites. He's going to see if he can't sort this out without going to battle. So verses 12 through 28, Jephthah, it says in verse 12, sends a messenger to the king and says, what do you have against me? That you've come against me to fight in my land. Now notice the posture Jephthah's already assuming. He's put himself on equal footing with the king of the Ammonites. What do you have against me? You're coming to, to my land. Well, the king responds with an accusation. This is the source of the entire problem from the Ammonite position. The king of the Ammonites answers the messengers of Jephthah saying, because Israel on coming up from Egypt took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok River and to the Jordan. Now, here's what I want. I want you to restore my land to me peacefully. So the king of the Ammonites is coming to make war against God's people in that region. And he's saying he's doing it because when God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt and led them through the land, they crossed the Jordan into the land of promise that they actually took his land hundreds of years ago, but now he wants it back. And he wants them to give it back peacefully. Now, in verses 14 through 17, we won't go through them in detail here. I'll give you the big picture because the story is getting us somewhere else. The way that Jephthah responds helps us to see, again, the man is good with his words. He tries diplomacy with the king first. So if you go and you read 14 through 27, you'll see that Jephthah responds to the king's accusation really with kind of a threefold response. He's got a, the a theological answer, he's got a historical answer, and, and then again, he's kind of got a backhanded challenge. Jephthah will respond to the king and say, from a historical perspective, actually, the land that God gave us belonged to the Amorites, not the Ammonites. It wasn't actually your land. The land that God gave us when we crossed over and settled, it wasn't yours to begin with. But then secondly, he's got a theological point that he wants to drive home to the king. The Lord, he said, dispossessed the people of the land and gave it to us. We didn't take it from anybody. God gave it to us, but in the first place, it wasn't yours to begin with. But then Jephthah, he's kind of got this interesting little backhanded challenge to the king here. He says in verse 20, 24, will you not possess what Chemosh your God gives you to possess? 
and all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. So that seems to be the culmination of his diplomacy. How about you take what your God gives you and we'll take what our God gives us and we'll all live happily ever after. Well, here's the thing. Chemosh was not their God. So people throughout the centuries have tried to wonder, well, was a mistake made here? Did, did he mean one thing and say something else, but we just left it in there because of the story? It's not what happened at all. History and a broader picture of what was going on in the Old Testament will kind of help unfold what Jephthah's saying right here. You see, Molech was their God, not Chemosh. Chemosh was actually the God of the Moabites. And as you understand Old Testament history and you begin to read the interactions throughout the Old Testament, you go to a, to a good ref reference book and read about the Old Testament history, you'll find that the Ammonites, the people he's dealing with now, were kind of like um, Robin to the Moabites' Batman. Whenever the Moabites said jump, the Ammonites had to say, how high? They were always under the thumb of the Moabites, a more dominant and more powerful group. So when he's writing this letter and he's reminding them historically it wasn't their land and theologically that God gave it to him in the first place, his final little underhanded response was, you know what? The Moabites' God will tell you what's yours anyway. God will tell me what's mine. And you find in verse 28, the king of the Ammonites didn't listen to the words of Jephthah. He didn't appreciate Jephthah's diplomacy. And so diplomacy very quickly turned to battle and weapons were used. Spirit of the Lord, verse 29, it says, the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and he passed on to Mitzvah of Gilead and from Mitzvah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites and battle ensues. And if you look down at verse 32, it says, Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities as far as Abel, Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. That's it. That's the detail. That's what we get of this buildup between Jephthah and the men of Gilead and God's people against the Ammonites. It comes out of that verse. Very little detail about the conquering of the Ammonites because it's not the point. There's something else that comes in here at this point in the story that's meant to be the focus of God's people for generations as they would read the book of Judges to one another. You see, between verse 29 and verses 32 and 33, the ones we just read, a dark cloud kind of rolls into the story. This ominous, if you think about it like a movie, darkness begins to set in over what's happening. This is going to be the focus of the story. Verse 30, this is the dark cloud. Listen to this. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And he said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. See, so far, if you've been with us in the book of Judges, you, you've seen that God's people have been consistently getting stuck kind of in this spin cycle of forgetting God. They forget who God is, what he has said, what it means to be his people. They haven't forgotten details about God. They haven't forgotten information about God. Who God is to them and who he has been and continues to be for them is not shaping the way that they live. At best, they're living with hearts that have been divided. They've worshiped him and then tried to hedge their bets with the cultural gods of their day and of their place. They've forgotten who he is. That's been the spin cycle. 
But now that spin cycle starts to degrade and it's going to go down and down and down. And what we begin to see here with Jephthah is that Jephthah is now treating Yahweh. He's now treating God as though he were just like the cultural pagan idols of the people around him. Before it's been God's people have worshiped God, but then hedged their bets over here with the gods of Baal and Asherah and and, and the Amorites and and the Amalekites and all the different ites we've been reading. Now in Jephthah, what we begin to see is that at heart, God has been trivialized to the point where he's no different than the rest of the gods around them. And see, if you've ever read this story, you've ever heard this story, it may even say in some of your translations, depending on which kind of Bible translation you have, it may have a header at the top of this part of the story that says Jephthah's rash vow, Jephthah's foolish vow. Those little descriptors are actually statements of interpretation and it's misleading at best. Because the vow that Jephthah made right there, that dark cloud that rolled in before the battle, it wasn't rash and it wasn't foolish, it was pagan. It was intentional. And it was reflective of a heart that had trivialized God to a place where Yahweh was no different than any of the gods around him. Jephthah made a pagan vow. He thinks that he can make a deal with God. He thinks that he can offer a sacrifice that will sweeten the pot for God to better ensure a desired outcome for Jephthah. You see, for Jephthah, if he wins the battle against the Ammonites, what does he ultimately get? He gets to be the leader. The people that had sent him out, he gets to come back as their head. He gets to make a name for himself. So in order to make a name for himself and to have a name amongst his people, he tries to sweeten the pot with God. This is how you dealt with all the pagan gods. This is how all the gods of their world operated. You made deals with them. Jephthah has trivialized God to such a place in his heart that Yahweh is no different than any of the gods around him. See, that's why while I was reading this week in Horton's book struck me so hard. Remember, he said his concern is that we're getting dangerously close to the place in everyday American church life where God is used as a personal resource rather than someone who's to be worshiped, known, trusted, and enjoyed. See, forgetting God, that spiritual amnesia that we've been talking about for weeks now in the book of Judges, when it sets in, confidence in God begins to erode. And you find yourself at heart engaging with God as though he is someone that you can master, someone that you can manipulate rather than someone that you're meant to know, enjoy, trust, and worship. You didn't have relationships with the gods of the Amorites, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Amalekites, the Baals, the Asherahs, Molech, Chemosh. You didn't have relationships with them. You cut deals with them. But God had entered into a covenant relationship with his people. He had made himself their God. He had made them his people. He had delivered them and brought them to the land of promise. He had given them his word that would guide and govern their life for their joy and his glory. He was to be known and trusted and worshiped and enjoyed. But the tragic, degrading consequence of this spiritual amnesia has led to a trivialization of God. Forgetfulness has left Jephthah in the place where he thinks he can manipulate God. See, for you and I, our bargains might not quite be like his. 
I'm not sure anyone in here, I'm not going to say I know that, but I'm not sure anyone in here has offered up a burnt offering to God if he would ensure some measure of blessing for your life. But I would guarantee the majority of us in here at some point have told God that we would try harder, we would do better, we would do anything he asked if he would just fill in the blank. I know God, I know God knows the sincerity of my heart. I know he knows I'm trying my hardest. I know he knows I come from a bad stock, a rough family. I know he knows my background. So I know when I get to the end and I stand before him face to face, he's gonna know what I had to go through. He's gonna know I tried my hardest. He'll let me in. Forgetfulness and amnesia leads to a place where God is one to be mastered, manipulated, but not known and trusted. And that kind of trivialization is a sure sign, or at least a signal at best, of an increasing assimilation in heart to the cultural gods of our day. It's no different now than it was for Jephthah. The details may look different and they're going to sound extremely gritty and unlike anything you could imagine in this life now, but in heart, it's not much different. We have gods in our day and in our culture that tell us if we would give our entire lives over to them, 80 hours a week, all of our effort, all of our intensity, all of our focus, they will reward us with success and finances and power. And so people offer their families, their lives, their relationships on an altar in return for this kind of success that the gods of, of finance and power promise. It's no different. It's no different. At heart, when God becomes someone that can be manipulated and mastered in our mind, the consequences become tragic. And that's what we see happens to Jephthah. As the story picks up, and the narrative begins to unfold, and the dark cloud that rolls in gets thicker and heavier and darker, we see the consequences of what's happening in the heart the vow that he makes and what we see happen, they're just the fruit of something that's happened in the heart. And we begin to see it here in verse 34. Verse 34, Jephthah came to his home in Mizpah and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. And you've become the cause of great trouble to me. For I've opened my mouth to the Lord and I can't take back my vow. I mean, do you, do you hear at least in the moment? He realizes what he's done. His daughter comes out of the house and he blames her for it. You catch that? He blames her for coming out of the house. Verse 36, she says to him, my father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me though. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity and I am my companions. So he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and they wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. That's the only detail we get. She had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel. And the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Now, if you've never read Judges, I'm going to give you a few seconds to just digest what we just read. 
the reality is, the plainest reading of this text is the most probable explanation of what actually happened. If you've been around judges at all, you've probably come across different attempts that people have made throughout the centuries to try to figure out exactly what was going on here. Maybe, according to the grammar of the actual text, Jephthah intended or thought in his mind an animal was going to come out and meet him first. So when he makes this particular vow to offer up this burnt offering to the Lord, in his mind, he thinks an animal is going to be what's coming out of his house because sometimes in those days, there were pens in the front of houses where certain animals were kept. The whole house, the whole complex was considered the home, not just a place where you slept and ate. So it was conceivable grammatically that maybe an animal would come out, but it's not conceivable grammatically that an animal would come out to meet him. The way that that language is particularly used, it's always used of a human interaction it's not conceivable, though emotionally it seems better if we get, take him off the hook of thinking that an animal was going to come. More plausible attempts have been made grammatically to try to understand what it was he was saying and what it was he was offering here and saying that he was actually offering up in the end his daughter's future potentials at marriage when he realizes what has happened. And he realizes that its daughter has come out. Way that we understand what it was he actually vowed was that he set her aside for service to the Lord at the tabernacle with the priest for the rest of her life. She would never know a man, never get married, never have children. There were instances in the Old Testament, you'll read them throughout the Old Testament, where people did dedicate family members or children to tabernacle service. That must be what he did. That's why when she went away, she wept for her virginity. She's not going to get married. Wasn't going to have kids. Well, it's probable, but it's not the most plausible because he said he was going to offer up whatever came out of his house as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the reality of it is when you go back and read the grammar and deal with what is actually being said, Jephthah had a human sacrifice in mind when he made this vow to the Lord. The grammar that he uses here is only used in context with human encounters. He intends to offer God a sacrifice for victory. I will offer this sacrifice to you if you bring me this victory. You bring me this victory. Remember, I get to become head. I get to become the leader. I would assume, and I say assume because you can't know for sure because it doesn't say it. I would assume in his mind, he did not think that his daughter would be the first person out the door. One of his servants, maybe. Maybe one of the other worthless fellows that was always with him that may have stayed behind at the house to watch over the house. Whatever it was, he intended a human sacrifice. As deplorable as that is. The other ones sound good because this is an emotionally charged story. They're plausible but I don't think they're actually probable or the best reading. See, Jephthah was completely assimilated to the world around him. Yahweh had just become another deity to him. And in an effort to secure his name and his position, he was willing to sacrifice to Yahweh anything that it would take to secure success and blessing. That's what's going on here. 
God's people who he had set his heart and his affection on, who he had delivered and brought to the place that he had promised, who had given his word and his relationship to, that the nations might be blessed through them, they have now become so assimilated to the world around them that the witness of God through them has been completely silenced. God is just another deity to be mastered and manipulated. That's why Jephthah made that vow. But here's the thing that you've got to deal with. That's why he made it, right? Completely assimilated, treating God as he was just another pagan deity. Why did he keep it? I mean, when it's his daughter that comes out the door, there's a time between his daughter coming out of the door and the fulfilling of the vow. Why in that slice of time did he decide to keep the vow? Why didn't he just break the vow when he realized that it was his daughter that came out of the door? Why didn't he just say, forget what I said before? I'm not going to do that. Well, there have been numerous explanations for why, why he continued to keep the vow. Some people have tried to persuasively argue that his vow was rash, remember? Foolish vow, rash vow. Others have tried to argue that he had bound himself now in a, in a really difficult place. Because Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2, it says this. It says, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of God's people, saying, this is what the Lord commands. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. So some try to say he bound himself by his own foolishness and rashness. Now he has to do what he has said. Poor Jephthah, so unschooled, so uncouth, unable to control his mouth. Well, the whole story tells you he was really good with his words. Everything he said and did was extremely intentional. That doesn't square with what we know about Jephthah and it doesn't square with someone who actually knows God. Doesn't just know facts about God, but knows him as he has given himself to be known. Someone who knew God and worshiped God and trusted God and enjoyed God. Had he known God that way, had he had known him and enjoyed him and trusted him and worshiped him, he would have known what God had said about what he had vowed himself to do. Someone around him even could have informed him again had he had forgotten of Deuteronomy chapter 18 where God said, there shall not be found among any of you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering for whoever does these things is an abomination to me. Had he had known God as someone to be trusted and enjoyed and worshiped and loved and known, even in foolishness of making that kind of vow, he would have known the greater thing that God had said. That God never calls his people to sin or cut deals with him. The foolishness of people trying to say he was stuck by this word in Numbers chapter 30 that he can't break his vow because of what he said is crazy. I mean, what if I stood right here and told you right now that I've made a vow to the Lord that I'm going to cheat on my wife this afternoon? What? Would you say, oh man, you shouldn't have said that? Well, I guess we've got to get a support plan together for Aaron. Got to help out the kids. No, you'd say just because you said something sinful doesn't mean that you actually do it. <laughs> That's what you should say. Had he had known God, as one to be enjoyed and trusted and worshiped. Even if this vow was foolish or rash, he would have torn his clothes, covered his head in ashes when he saw his daughter coming out and he would have done it in repentance because he knew the grace of God already set up for him beforehand. 
If he had known God and trusted God and enjoyed God as one to be worshipped, he would have known or been reminded even of Leviticus chapter 27 where God made provisions for such stupid sinful vows like this. Leviticus chapter 27, God puts in a provision for vows that people would make to him, giving of their children or of their animals in service to him, knowing when a day would come that they wouldn't be able to do it. They wouldn't be able to keep it. So God gives a way to redeem that vow, to break that vow. Had Jephthah known God, had he had tasted him as one to be trusted and enjoyed and worshiped, he would have torn his clothes like he did. He would have covered his head as ashes and he would have done it in repentance because he would have known that God had already provided for a way out and he could have owned the sinfulness of his vow. He could have known the grace of God given for even these moments. See, forgetting God has given way to an utter trivialization of him. And this trivialization results in thinking that he's someone, that God is someone to be mastered and used rather than worshiped and trusted and enjoyed. And through this, the witness to the nations that God has established beforehand to come through his people in this place has been silenced. You see, I wish we had time to get into this whole side of the story. Jephthah was trying to make a name for himself, right? I'm going to win. I get to be head. That increases my name. God, I'm going to give you any sacrifice to make that happen if you'll give me victory. He's trying to make a name for himself, but in the end, he loses it all because his only child is dead. His name won't continue on. He's lost his family, and he's lost what he so desperately at heart wanted. One writer said, We're, well, I won't get into that. We don't have time. Because here's the thing. The tragedy of Jephthah's life, the consequences of what's going on in his heart, as deplorable as the story is, it's not over. Jephthah actually spills into chapter 12. We won't read the whole part for Jephthah here, but I'll tell you what happens. You can go read it this week. In chapter 12, the Ephraimites, we met the Ephraimites before. If you remember, they were the guys that got so mad at Gideon. When Gideon led the army of 300 into battle, the Ephraimites came to him and said, why didn't you call us first? Don't you know who we are? Remember that whole tension? Well, it happens again. The Ephraimites get mad at Jephthah. Why didn't you call us in the battle? Jephthah then leads the armies of Israel, of his tribes, against the Ephraimites. Now we have Israelites going to war against each other. And Jephthah devises this tremendous plan. Don't remember, don't let anyone tell you Jephthah was stupid and that he wasn't good with his words. Jephthah devised this plan in battle against the Ephraimites when they controlled the rivers. They set up a, a little block, most likely, that when the Ephraimites who were on one side of the river tried to cross the river to get back to their land, Jephthah set up a test. See, the people of Israel were scattered through a large plot of land and they all had different dialects. They all sounded a bit different. The way they said certain words was different, even if you travel in the United States. We have different ways of saying different things, right? He set up this test that when Ephraimites were trying to cross the river to get back to their land, they could not pronounce the S-H sound. Shh, shh. They couldn't say that sound. So he set his soldiers up on the river. And anybody who tried to cross from the river, he'd say, are you an Ephraimite? And they'd say, no. And he'd say, well, say Shibboleth. And they'd say, Sibboleth. And he'd kill them on the spot. And chapter 12, verse 6 tells you that in his battle against the Ephraimites, 
Jephthah led the people of God to kill 42,000 of his own people. 42,000 Israelites. We're watching the consequences when the heart begins to trivialize the reality of who God is. See, it's easy for you and I to read these stories and to feel revolted. And the reality of it is you should. There should be a revulsion in your heart as you read this story. But here's the thing. We read it, and that's not the only intended response. God intends for you and I to read this and to hear this, and at the same time, take it in as a warning that we might take care lest our hearts don't follow the same path as Jephthah's. It's so easy to read these stories and to see the consequences that played out in their time and to consider ourselves more sophisticated and better than the people back then. But the reality of it is we're no different in heart. The same thing that was happening in the hearts of God's people played out in this one man in Jephthah is the same sin, the same thing that plays out in our hearts. It lives in you and it lives in me. Don't you dare let yourself hear this story and go, well, those are primitive people. This isn't anything like me in my world. No, it's the same thing. The same sin and the same tendency to trivialize God and assimilate the gods of the world into our own hearts and lives is the same for you and I as it was for him. And the same for God's people then. Friends, like like Paul said, he told the Romans, let this episode written down for us in the book of Judges serve as a warning and instruction for you this morning. You know one reason why I love the fact that this story is in here? I hate the sin in this story. But it reminds me of why I love God's word so much. If you've never engaged with God's word, I want you to realize God's word is one of the most honest books you will ever read. God does not hide the reality of sin and its consequences from his people in his word. It is honest, it is gritty, and we are exposed when we come to God's word with the reality of sin in our own hearts and the consequences of that sin. And I love the story because it reminds me of the tragic nature of sin and the very thing that my heart is so prone to and at the same time, just how widespread the consequences of my sin are. See, you and I, we can become so insulated even when we think about our sin and we come to God's word and we come face to face with the reality of sin in our own life, we can convince ourselves that our sin only hurts us. My sin has no consequence on anyone else around me, therefore I can manage it, I can contain it, I can compartmentalize it, I'll deal with it when I get to because I've got it. It doesn't impact anyone else. Well, this story is a stark reminder of the widespread nature of the impact of your sin on the lives of people around you. We're exposed again as we come to God's word here and we come face to face with the honesty of God's word that we can see the devastation, the wake of devastation that comes in the lives of people around one man. And what we're seeing, don't don't be dismayed and put off by just what we see as the fruit here. This is just the fruit of sin planted in the heart. God had been trivialized. The gods of the world brought in. And as God reminds us in the most honest way possible of the reality of our sin, the depth of our sin, 
the broadcast consequences of sin undealt with, not only in our own heart and life, but in the lives of those we love. He reminds us again of our need for a savior. See, one of the reoccurring themes of this book, we've talked about it each week as we've kind of gone along, is the need for a deliverer, a need for a savior. God's people continually find themselves in sin, worshiping false gods, either with divided hearts or now completely trivializing God himself and in need of someone to deliver them and save them. Who, who's the man that's going to come? And week after week, we see in the book of Judges that God raises up a deliverer to deliver his people, but this deliverer can never ultimately deliver them from that which is killing them on the inside. They always find themselves back in sin again because there is a need that each and every single person has here and now for one who would come and finally deliver us from that which is most deadly to us, the consequences of our own sin. And as we come face to face with the honesty of God's word, even in this story, and we see our sin reflected in the life of this man and these people, we sense again our need for someone to save us from what is most deadly inside of us. And praise God as we come to the honesty of his word, he takes us right to the one that he has planned, right to the one that he's brought. So even in this story, Jephthah stirs in our heart this God-ordained desire for a perfect deliverer. Praise God. He brings us by his grace to a more perfect savior. We come face to face with his son who when he came to this earth was despised by men. But unlike the imperfect and broken savior we find in Jephthah, Jesus wasn't summoned by us to come and help us and save us. He came on his own accord to rescue us and deliver us from our own sin And when he came, he did not require, like the gods of the Amalekites and the gods of the Ammonites, he did not require you and I to offer something on an altar to earn his favor, to earn his love. He offered himself up in our place. And I love what Jen Wilkin, one of the writers, she just kind of referenced this story in one of her books. And I love what she said about this and thinking about the Savior that God has provided for us. She said, Jesus, when he came, he didn't take us to the river and threaten to kill us if we didn't say the words right. He took us to the cross and he pronounced salvation over us. See, Jephthah believes that we can only find favor with God through extreme sacrifices. But he points us to the one that God ultimately provided who offers us favor with God, a free gift to us because of the sacrifice that he made in our place. Friends, Jephthah is here to warn us. Jephthah's here to open up our eyes. Jephthah's here to help us again see our need for a more perfect savior and a more perfect deliverer. And this morning, you and I have the privilege to respond to the grace that God has provided for us in his son together as a family in just a moment as we receive communion together, remembering the perfect, the more perfect savior and deliverer that he has provided in his son and the sacrifice that his son has made in our place for our sin. And so in just a moment, I'm going to pray. 
And then as is our normal response to God's word, out of a heart of gratitude and thankfulness for his grace, you and I as his people are going to respond by receiving communion together. And it's going to be the same way we do it every week, though it's going to look a little bit different. So instead of multiple sections of people, we're going to be lined up in the front here. And for those of you that have tasted the grace of God through the work of Christ and have placed your faith upon him as your savior and your king, as the musicians begin to play, whenever you're ready, you can just stand up and make your way to whichever aisle is closest to you you and whichever station is closest to you and I promise it will all work out and if you're here with us this morning and and you've never known the grace of God through the work of Christ and you've never known him as your king but you've never known him as your savior and you've never known God to be one that's to be trusted and and you never thought of God as one to be enjoyed let me say I'm glad that you're here this morning I want to help answer any question that you have about who God is and who he's revealed himself to be in Christ. I'm sure whoever invited you here would love to help you out with that as well. But as we pray and the musicians begin to play, if you've never placed your faith in the person and work of Jesus, let me just encourage you to remain where you are. There are prayers that are on that worship guide that you got that you can use during that time. Grab one of us when the service is over. Introduce yourself. We'd love to help you better understand this good news that we call the gospel. But I would encourage you this morning, if you're here and you want to know the grace and favor of God through Christ, and you want to know God is one to be enjoyed. He calls you to repent of your sin, to recognize your need for deliverance, to recognize your need for his grace and to call upon him. So I'm going to pray this morning and then we're going to respond together as a family. Father, thank you this morning for the time that we have together. Thank you for the honesty of your word that you don't hold anything back, Lord, but in every way you expose to us our increased need for your love and for your grace, and you take us to your son, you take us to the cross, you take us to the demonstration of your love for us and the price that you've paid for us. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to do that together as a family, and this morning I would ask that you would do the miracle in each of our hearts that only you can do as we're here through your word, that you would that you would stir our affections in a new way for your mercy and for your grace. We ask that you would do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.